Episode 40 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 7.3, Helaman Chapter 1 and the Foreshadowing of Change. In this episode, I will take us back to the beginning of secret combinations in the Book of Mormon. This was the period between 53 to 50 BC, or the 39th to 42nd years of the reign of the judges. This was just after Moroni passed command of the Nephite armies to his son, Moronihah, that we discussed back in episode 38, or part 7.1 of this series. I invite you to read the Book of Mormon account from Alma chapter 63, verse 15, to Helaman chapter 1, verse 34, before listening to this episode, so that events as recorded by Mormon are fresh in your mind. I also think it is good to reread the account following my discussion on lessons learned to re-examine Mormons and your own thoughts on the events in comparison to mine. I want to connect this ancient account from the Book of Mormon to a relatively contemporary event. I quote from Yasser Abu Hilala, who was a columnist for El Ghad newspaper published in Amman, Jordan. This comment appeared in a column from 15 August 2006. The motivation for the article was the then-recently-concluded war between Israel and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. This was a 38-day war that, at the time, was generally viewed as less than successful for the Israelis and a victory for Hezbollah. Quote, The victory that was achieved by Hezbollah in Lebanon is going to have earth-shaking repercussions on the regional level and not just in Lebanon. The upcoming generation of young Arabs have witnessed a model that is attractive as opposed to other models that are not. They view the party's victory without sectarian or political barriers. Young men of few numbers and few weapons stood fast in the face of the most fierce force ever known in the region. What Hezbollah did is an extension to what the resistance did in Palestine, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The lost dignity is not an occupation by a foreign enemy. It is also a repression from an inside enemy. The arena of the next battle in the nature of Arabs and Islam is internal, without even having completed the war with the foreign enemy. Close quote. Yasser was trying to express that what people had just witnessed was a sea change in fighting against and opposition to Israeli military technical and tactical dominance and a wave of the future. In a way, he was right, and in a way, he was wrong. What matters is the significance of a sea change. This is what we are about to talk about in the Book of Mormon. The events of Helaman chapter 1 were the first serious indication of a sea change in conflict in the Book of Mormon. Moronihah's first test as the new Nephite chief captain came in an event that received little attention from Mormon and apparently was a simple battle for the Nephites and is recorded in Alma 63 verse 15. Quote, and also in this same year they came down with a numerous army to war against the people of Moronihah or against the army of Moronihah, in the which they were beaten and driven back again to their own lands, suffering great loss. Close quote. This was possibly a single battle and was probably connected in some way to the events that followed later. Based on the time period and what we know of the politics of the later events, it is likely that Tubaloth, the son of Ammaron, was the king of the Lamanites during this incursion. If this was so, 
then the events in Alma 63 and Helaman 1 are linked in that they were both part of Tubalos' attempt to continue the failed war of his father and uncle. I want to list off the sequence of events from the 39th to the 42nd years of the reign of the judges. 53 BC, or the 39th year of the reign of the judges, the 10th Nephite dissension was led by an unknown leader. The Battle of Moronihah's army took place. 52 BC, or the 40th year of the reign of the judges, we have the third change of chief judge from Pahoran I to his son Pahoran II. The 11th Nephite dissension was led by Pankai, Pahoran II's brother. We have the first formation of a band of Gadianton robbers, the first murder of a chief judge, that being Pahoran II, the fourth change of chief judge from Pahoran II to his brother Pakumanai. 51 BC, or the 41st year of the reign of the judges. Tubaloth ordered an attack that included the fourth battle of Zarahemla, which was a Nephite loss. There were many other battles as part of the penetration campaign of Tubaloth's war that included Nephite victories in the first battle of the march and the second battle of the march and the fifth battle of Zarahemla. 50 BC, or the 42nd year of the reign of the judges, we have the fifth change of chief judge from Pakumanai to Helaman III. Tubalos War, as I name it, had two campaigns, the Perimeter Campaign and the Penetration Campaign. They are named that way as that was where I believe that each one was fought, the perimeter of the Nephite state and a penetration into the heart of the Nephite state. The differences include the following. The first, or perimeter, campaign may have been met and defeated on the perimeter or border of the Nephite lands. This is unclear in the record, but the idea of the army of the Lamanites coming against the army of Moronihah gives the impression that the attack was made against the fortifications and bases made by Moroni prior to his retirement, as recorded in Alma 62, verse 42. The second test for Moronihah as the chief captain of the Nephite armies came in the very turbulent times of a change in political leadership. The second campaign was also under Tubaloth's leadership, but it was different from the first and demonstrated some of the most adaptive elements in Lamanite operational strategy. It is in the simple and straightforward narrative of Helaman chapter 1 that the reader sees the transformation of warfare from state versus state to state versus the emerging non-state Gadianton robbers, or simply robbers, as they will be referred to from this point forward. This transformation occurred during a change in the position of chief judge or governor of the land. Even in modern times, there is great turbulence and uncertainty in the transition of authority. In our contemporary world, we also witness the struggle of non-state organizations and entities to gain legitimacy through intimidation, murder, and subversion with the intent of establishing themselves as the controlling voice in the political process and world. Few chapters in the Book of Mormon have the potential of direct application like the one under discussion here. Every reader of the Book of Mormon should be able to read the narrative and recognize the dynamics present in the modern world. It is not my intent to make specific connections from Book of Mormon people or events to present-day people or events, or to link modern groups to ancient ones in a direct succession. But I do want to point out the similarities 
so that you and I can be able to apply all things unto ourselves. Mormon clearly knew the applicable nature of the events he described, and that is why we receive such brilliant detail in this chapter. He wanted us to gain some insight and learn from the demise of his own people. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Transition of Authority Following the successful completion of the campaign by Moroniha in the 39th year of the reign of the judges, the chief judge, Pahoran I, died in the 40th year of the reign of the judges. He was a significant character, the last of the leaders of the Amalekiahite War. To say he was a unifying character would be inaccurate, as numerous contentions existed during his reign and the country, other than in war, seemed always on the brink of fragmentation. He did seem to be able to maintain the loyalty of a core of the Nephites, and these people probably represented what most readers would consider the central majority of Nephite culture. His death threw the state into another succession crisis, as the means of succession was not clearly delineated prior to his death, as recorded in Helaman chapter 1, verse 2. As a side note about the transitions in chief judges, as one searches the Book of Mormon, it is worth noting that there is only one transition of chief judge that did not have some crisis associated with it. That was the transition from Nephi 4 to Caesarum, and it occurred in the midst of a war with the Lamanites and the counteroffensives associated with it. We will address this transition in a later episode. In six of 15 transitions, there were assassinations that precipitated the change. In others, there were external invasions, and some included Nephite dissensions, and others included all or nearly all of the above. It is also useful to note that Mormon did not give detailed accounts of all the changes, so there is the possibility that a very few could have been peaceful. Back to the story at hand. Pahoran One's sons competed for the support of the people. This is good evidence of the warning given by Mosiah II in reference to the challenges that may have been offered by one of his sons over the others, depending on who might have been selected, as we are told in Mosiah 29.7. Pahoran II was appointed, as expressed in Helaman 1.5, by the voice of the people, to be chief judge and a governor. It is unclear what appointed meant. It is probably inaccurate to assume a form of mass democracy where ballots were cast and counted, but most likely this was a representative form of selection. The reasoning for this comment is that democratic rule was an extreme rarity in the ancient world. Athens and only a few other Greek city-states had it, and there are and were numerous ways for the voice of the people to be heard and assessed without it being one person, one vote. Regardless of the logistical aspects of this verse, the people selected Pahoran II, and one of his two competing brothers, named Pekumani, immediately united in supporting the voice of the people. The other brother, in competition for the position, Paankai, did not agree with the voice of the people and began the process of recruiting followers for another dissension and rebellion. Prior to the dissension gaining significant traction, Paankai was arrested and tried and condemned to death, as we are told in Helaman 1.8. 
This political situation, with the dissension leader in prison awaiting execution, led the dissenting group to designate an assassin to go and kill the newly selected chief judge. Kishkumen, the assassin, was successful in the murder and in his flight from the servants of the chief judge. The group entered a covenant of secrecy, thus bringing to the Nephites, for the first time, the burden of secret combinations. Pakumani was designated chief judge and governor of the land, again according to the voice of the people. The Non-State Actor This story is the first reference to secret combinations in the Book of Mormon. Though chronologically, the Jaredites had a significant history with secret combinations, the Nephites had not. There is a greater discussion on the role of secret combinations in the previous episode. Here, the intent is to put secret combinations in context of the simple story of transition of authority and the transition of opponent expressed by Mormon. It is important to note that the portion of the story dealing with the secret combinations precedes that against the conventional opponent. There are several key elements in this story. One, the notion of secret rebellion was a logical transition from the dissension of Amalickiah and the kingmen. There seemed to be a progression for how the dissensions were raised and the nature of subversion used. Second, Kishkumen moved in secret by means of disguise, as we are told in Helaman 1.12. This communicates both a level of planning and attention to detail critical to a mission so designed to kill a head of state. This is something for which secret organizations are famous. Third, the chief judge had servants. These men must have been like those who fought alongside Alma II at the Battle of Sidon Crossing, as we discussed in Episode 18 or Part 4.3. These were guards and not simply stewards. Tubalos' war continued. The first campaign under Tubalos' reign failed in the 39th year of the reign of the judges. The second campaign began in the 41st year of the reign of the judges. Some of the basic patterns followed by Amalickiah were repeated in this campaign. Tubaloth stirred up the people to anger with the Nephites, and he appointed a leader of the Lamanite armies, a large and powerful man named Coriantumr, or Coriantumr II, as I will refer to him, as recorded in Helaman chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. The internal Nephite dissensions, combined with a reactive understanding of the enemy, caused the Nephites to have fewer guards than necessary in the land of Zarahemla. A reactive understanding of the enemy means that the Nephite conceptualization of the Lamanites was created by simply relying on their past behaviors rather than on a predictive appreciation for what they might do. The second battles of Ammonihah and Noah are great examples of a predictive appreciation and proactive assessments of an opponent, as we discussed in episode 26 or part 6.1. By the time we get to the chief captaincy of Moronihah, the Lamanites had consistently attacked the fortifications and cities on the borders of the Nephite lands, since the Amlicite War of nearly 36 years earlier. Moronihah had fallen into the trap of expecting the enemy to do what they had consistently been doing. Another note from the text is the fact that the Nephite army was dispersed, probably in multiple defensive positions, 
and it was necessary to gather together before they could fight a major battle, as we are told in Helaman 1.19. Coriantumr II understood his imperative, speed. He moved his army aggressively and quickly, and he was thus able to seize the city of Zarahemla, one of the prizes of Lamanite strategy for many generations, with what seemed to be limited fighting. The army swept through the entrance of the city, killing the guards there and capturing the city through slaying all opposition, as stated in Helaman 120. The chief judge and governor was forced to flee, but he was caught and killed by being beat against the city wall. This entire action displayed a level of Lamanite audacity not previously seen and offered a brief glimpse into the brutal nature of Coriantumr II's personality. Coriantumr II did not fight a single battle, but rather he fought a campaign of multiple battles, Zarahemla being only the first. He quickly moved from Zarahemla based on his assessment of Nephite weakness, possibly a perception of Nephite personal and collective weakness. This arrogant presumption caused him to move out very quickly in pursuit of Bountiful, the second jewel in Lamanite strategic doctrine, and control of the access points to the land northward as explained in Helaman 1.23. As this early series of events happened, Moronaiha was busy. We are given little detail of his actions, but we are told that he dispatched Lehi II from the land Bountiful to stop the advance of Coriantumr II and his army, and that later Moronaiha and his army were able to cut Coriantumr II off on his return to Zarahemla, as given in Helaman 1, 28-30. Mormon gave insight into Moronaiha's failure in understanding his opponent. He shared the fact that Moronaiha was surprised because he did not consider the course of action that was followed by Coriantumr II. Moronaiha expected his enemy to continue doing what he had been doing. Moronaiha had assumed risk in the center, expecting that a strong border area combined with earlier Lamanite failures before the walls of Zarahemla would dissuade an attack on the center. Mormon states in Helaman 127 clearly that the Lamanites were not frightened according to Moronaiha's desire. Reading between the lines, it seems that Moronaiha was able to direct Lehi II, either personally or through a courier, to move his army toward Bountiful and then to attack south along the route of march of Coriantumr II. What is clear from the text is that Lehi II did not attack along a direct path as he led his, quote, army roundabout to head them before they should come to the land Bountiful. Close quote from Helaman 1.28. Given the general geography presented by this podcast, this leads me toward an assessment that Moronaiha and Lehi II were in the southern or eastern parts of the land, close to the Lamanite borders. They both had armies under their command, and they were both able to react quickly once they received information. The Nephites were left to react to Coriantumr II and his onslaught as best they could. This probably meant that many smaller communities were forced to fight a much larger force or to flee to the wilderness to avoid death and destruction. It was this dispersed and uncoordinated action that allowed Coriantumr II to move through the capital parts of the land as described in Helaman 1.27. Lehi II was able to head Coriantumr II, and with his force alone, he defeated Coriantumr II in battle 
or at least surprised him sufficient to cause him to begin a withdrawal toward the land of Zarahemla. Moronihah attacked from the south, headed Coriantumr II in his retreat, and brought him again to battle. Coriantumr II was more determined in this fight as it became an exceedingly bloody battle, as we are told in Helaman 1.30. The reason for the increased intensity is obvious. Coriantumr II knew he had another Nephite army behind him, and his only chance of protection was to regain his occupation of Zarahemla. He failed to break through Moronihah's lines, and he died in the attempt. His army was completely surrounded, and the Lamanites had no choice but to surrender to the Nephites. Mormon used one of his famous thus editorial comments to conclude this campaign, as he says in Helaman 1, verse 32, quote, And thus had Coriantumr plunged the Lamanites into the midst of the Nephites, insomuch that they were in the power of the Nephites, and he himself was slain, and the Lamanites did yield themselves into the hands of the Nephites. Close quote. This comment is powerful in the simple sense of Mormon's key points. Coriantumr II created the opportunity for the Nephites to unify by plunging his army into their midst. After the successful conclusion of the battle, Moronihah, like his father, allowed those Lamanites who had been taken prisoner to depart out of the land in peace. This was probably done after oaths had been sworn. Lessons Learned Military History It has been several episodes since I referenced these terms, and I want to remind the listener what I mean by the five terms that I use in discussing military history lessons. Identification, Isolation, Suppression, Maneuver, and Destruction. Identification is the ability to define and locate the opponent. Isolation is when the opponent is denied the ability to gain outside resources and assistance. Suppression is the process of denying the opponent the freedom of movement and ultimately maneuver. Maneuver is a combination of movement and firepower, either in a physical sense or perceived sense, to achieve a position of relative advantage. Destruction is the end of the enemy resistance, through either physical destruction of resources or the destruction of the opponent's will. The lessons from this campaign center on identification and maneuver. Identification. Moronihah misread the Lamanites. He did not think they would attack Zarahemla. It is unclear whether this was because he underestimated their ability to think creatively, or he just expected them to continue doing what they had always done. Either way, the results were the same. Contrarily, Coriantumr II seemed to really grasp that swift movement could achieve great success. Isolation. Coriantumr II was impetuous, and he allowed audacity and pride to combine and create heedless risk that resulted in his army being in the midst of his opponent. Moronihah surrounded his opponent through a bold movement of forces. Suppression. Coriantumr II could not maneuver once he lost the encounter with Lehi II. He was moving to regain Zarahemla without an expectation of achieving any other position of advantage. Maneuver. Coriantumr II thought he understood the Nephite center of gravity, Zarahemla. He may have been right had he held the city and reinforced it, but his aggressive movement from the city denied us from knowing what might have been. Moronihah created maneuver through a totally bold movement of Lehi II and his army to get between Coriantumr II and Bountiful. 
he gained another position of advantage by placing his army on the expected route of retreat. Destruction. Coriantumr II's first loss to Lehi II combined with the appearance of Moroniha had to significantly dishearten his army. The fact that the dynamic leader of the Lamanite force was killed further destroyed the will to fight while surrounded. Lessons learned spiritual. There are four points that I will emphasize from this story. One, disunity weakens vigilance and protection. Moroniha was forced to man the defenses of the Nephite state in the midst of a significant dissension resulting from a contentious succession. The murder of the chief judge further heightened the crisis. All of these events and the presence of Gadianton robbers in the city had to serve a part in weakening the defenses of Zarahemla. This was a city ripe for the picking. Spies of the Lamanites might have served in providing this information. Once again, the cost of disunity in terms of lives lost is emphasized in the record. 2. Benefit of community versus self. Strength elsewhere. Even though Zarahemla was weakened by disunity, there were powerful armies elsewhere among the Nephites. Two armies each fought and defeated Coriantumr II. Though the Nephites suffered significant losses in their capital and in the smaller settlements as Coriantumr II attacked toward Bountiful, the plan of having garrisons on the borders meant that there were forces available to fight the invader. This point represents a profound truth of the purpose of uniting together in an organized body rather than being alone in our faith. If one stumbles or falls in their faithfulness, there is strength elsewhere in the community of believers who can rally together and regain the lost ground and recover the fallen soul. 3. Head and surround the army. Moroniha was not content with simply applying one army against Coriantumr II. He moved two forces against him. He may not have understood the opponent before the campaign, but he did understand the opponent during the campaign, and he knew where he would go after Lehi II defeated him. The importance of facing Satan head-on and confronting evil is clear. It is not enough to keep chasing evil and trying to repair the damage after it has been caused. We must meet and stop the progress so that when he turns back, he must be surrounded and removed from the landscape completely. 4. Regain lost places and people. Moroniha did not just defeat the invading army. He regained all of the lands that the Nephites had lost. It is not enough to simply stop the opponent or drive them out of the land. We must go to where the adversary has been successful and reclaim those places that have been taken and those souls who have been lost. Mormon's metaphor. How do these battles support it? Preparation. The battles that we have discussed in this episode provide a powerful lesson of the challenges that come from a lack of preparation. In this case, the failure to fully understand the intent of the enemy through spies. This sequence also demonstrates the power of having other forces prepared elsewhere so that one can react to localized loss and recover it. Covenants. There are three issues related to covenants from this story. One is the unwillingness of those who followed one claimant to the Nephite throne over another rather than adhering to the oaths taken to support the title of liberty. The second covenant reference is to the secret oaths and covenants made by the robbers. The third 
is an implied covenant, or oath, between Lehi II and Moronihah, as they both conducted separate and bold maneuvers to stop the enemy. Without the trust brought on by confidence and sworn commitments, this would not have been possible. Unity. This is a story filled with unity issues. The lack of political unity among the Nephites, combined with the inherent disunity among the robber community, clearly sets the stage for the emphasis on unity. The lack of Nephite unity allowed Coriantumr II to successfully take the heart of the land, Zarahemla. Then there is the example of a unified military purpose through separate maneuver and the final unity of surrounding the opponent. It is hard to find more powerful comparisons between the power of unity and the weakness of disunity in the entire record. Conclusion Helaman chapter 1 is a chapter of great importance. First, Mormon used this chapter to foreshadow the change in opponents for the reader, to express that the real danger to the Nephite state was not the Lamanite armies who could be defeated even after significant errors in preparation. Rather, the real danger were the robbers who lived among the people and moved about in disguise to kill leaders undetected. Moronihah and the Nephites fought multiple battles in this campaign. The Fourth Battle of Zarahemla, loss as Coriantumr II captured the city, several battles, at least three, as Coriantumr II attacked through the more capital parts of the land, First Battle of the March, won by Lehi II, the Second Battle of the March, won by Moronihah, and the Fifth Battle of Zarahemla, which was the city recaptured by Moronihah. The next episode is sort of the first part of a two-part episode that identifies the significant collapse of Nephite unity evidenced with two dissensions that led to the near-complete capture of the Nephite state and the attempt to regain those lost cities. The second part will discuss how those cities were ultimately regained. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>